0: Welcome back to the Alessant Innovator Series. In our 15th episode, host April Lemon is joined by Philip Hunt, partner at Rathel Hunt & Associates. In this episode, Phil demystifies special district financing options for master plan communities and talks more specifically about why developers leverage these tools, the upside for those involved in the project, and more. Special districts are a way for developers to fund public infrastructure like bridges, roads, water, and more using tax-exempt municipal bonds. Check out the show summary for a further breakdown on special district financing, other options for developers, and view some of Phil's most recent projects in the Miami area. This episode of the Alessant Innovator Series is presented by Alessant Azul. With Azul, your residents can forget their key fobs and you can stop worrying about managing those key fobs. To learn more about mobilized access control for your community, visit alessant.com. Hello and welcome back to
1: the Alessant Innovator Series. Today we're joined by Phil Hunt. Phil is a very impressive man who has a lot to share with us today about the financing options that, that really bring many of our beautiful master plan communities to life. Phil, do you mind starting off by just introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background and your company.
2: Yeah, thanks April. I'm excited to be here with you. So. I started in public finance as an investment banker, which I did for 32 years, but along the way, I saw folks doing the special taxing district financing for developers and decided that had to be a little more fun than working with generic public finance with cities and counties and water boards, et cetera. So I set out to learn about the business and the players, and I met my future business partner, Craig Rathel, in the process, and we decided to start a company creating and managing these special taxing districts in 2005 and now after 18 years we've grown to 40 employees managing approximately 170 CDD districts in Florida and we also serve as a developer financial advisor in other states like Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, Georgia and Mississippi.
1: That's quite a reach. You know, probably other people like me heard 2005 and thought, wow, that was an interesting time to start a new company. Did you face some initial headwinds with the (laughs) the housing market? Oh,
2: yeah. We, We joke all the time that we're really market timers. So we got in right at the peak and right as it was starting to crash. But, you know, it's one of those things where you learn more in bad times than you do in good times. So we learned a lot working through workout projects after 2008 in Florida. And that was that was pretty helpful. And re- we really gained a lot of knowledge with that.
1: I bet, I bet. And um, it's an interesting transition from that um, finance background now into the work that you're doing. How, how did you actually make that transition? I, I know you said it seemed like it'd be more interesting. Um, how did you how did you take the opportunity to step out into kind of a new terrain?
2: Well, it's really the same terrain to be honest with you because I was doing municipal bonds, putting together municipal bond financing for cities and counties and and other municipal governments, but CDD or special district financing is the same thing. You're putting together public finance tools and putting together municipal bond financing for developers that have created special taxing districts. So sitting on a different side of the table, it's a little bit different tool, but it's it's the same general financing. It is still a municipal bond.
1: Interesting. What what is it that fascinates you about the industry? Now you've had a couple different chairs at the table. What is it that attracts you to this industry? You
2: know, the thing that fascinates me the most is working with really smart developers that are doing cool projects and watching these guys navigate the tumultuous world that is development and home building. You know, it's still fun to drive down the road and point out lasting projects that we were involved in. And I'll say to my wife, hey, I did that project. And she goes, I know, you told me the last four or five trips. So I keep doing it just. Just to have fun with her. But it it is fun to point out something lasting like that.
1: It is. It's, um, I think many of us who work in this industry share that same um, thrill, you know, of seeing a community that you knew you had some part in, you know, even for our business running, you know, the community's apps, there's just tremendous pride being there in person, knowing that so many of the people that live there are are finding you know, the tools useful and that you've had a role in making their lives really, really terrific.
2: Yep, I agree.
1: Um, I'd really like to dig in a little deeper, um, Phil, into this whole area of special districts. And you know, for someone who's uh, like a 101 level college course on the topic, uh, can you give us a little bit of kind of just setting the table? What are they you know, who do they serve Kind of help bring us all up to speed?
2: Yeah, special districts are a way for developers to fund public infrastructure, much like a city or a county uh, would using tax-exempt municipal bonds. Think of all the infrastructure that's horizontal on and below the ground, such as roads, bridge, water, sewer, stormwater, landscape, etc., and this is a, it's basically a non-recourse financing with no personal or corporate guarantees. The only security for the bonds is the land itself.
1: Interesting. And um, you mentioned that that the initial um, benefit is to the developer, right? Because they have to put a lot on the ground to even be ready to sell lots, I'm assuming. So, you know, is, are they the primary beneficiary or does that evolve over time?
2: So it's a good question. So it started by the developer, but they ultimately end up serving the residents of that community, but they can also serve the residents of the larger community being the city or the county as a whole, if they fund major off sites, lift stations, major roads, major water and sewer trunk lines public parks, trails, et cetera. So certainly it aids the residents of your community in that district that you've created, but it can it can be further reaching that and, and really benefit everybody in the city or the county.
1: Yes, and I could see how that really feeds into the destination quality of many of these uh, master plans that are so attractive for um, homeowners or, or or tenants of the, in those projects, as not only is their community you know sort of so well ex- established, but the broader sense of place is is really coming to life.
2: Yep, I agree.
1: So, um, if I'm a developer and I'm considering my you know a variety of of financing options, when would I think that um, a special district? financing tool might be most appropriate?
2: So they're most appropriate when you have a pretty heavy infrastructure cost and you have lots of units to spread that cost over. Generally, we like to say that you need at least 300 residential units to make it cost effective uh, in a residential deal and maybe 300,000 or 400,000 square feet on a commercial or a mixed use project. You know, the exceptions would be you can get by with a lower unit count. If you have a much higher house value, that, that would still work, too. But those are kind of the minimum thresholds, and there really is no maximum.
1: So when you look at your portfolio for your company, um, can you share a little bit about your specific role? Is you know, is it getting set up? Is it the, through the life of the project? Share with us a little bit more about how your firm uh, gets involved.
2: Yes. Yeah, so this law exists in probably 18 or 20 states in some form or another, but most of the projects we do are in the Southeast and certainly the vast, vast majority, 98% of them are in Florida and Texas. And in Florida, we serve as a district manager, which includes the creating of the district, helping the finance team finance the bonds, and then ultimately managing this government that the developer has created into the future this is what we call an independence district model in florida in texas it's what we call a dependent district model and there the city picks the entire finance team because the district is really created by the city and the bonds are issued by that city so in that instance we serve as the developer financial advisor and we're really the only professional with this type of experience sitting on the developer side of the table because in Texas, the city has picked everybody else, so that, it's a little bit different role. But again, it's still the same general type financing in Florida and Texas.
1: So, if you're maintaining those districts, I could I could imagine that you know you've got a lot of job security there, Phil.
2: Yeah, these things uh, certainly they're going to be there for the length of the bonds, which is thirty years. But in reality, they're probably going to go in perpetuity because. Even though the bonds get paid off over time, big communities might issue more bonds for other improvements, you know, in that 30-year period and you start another 30-year clock. Uh, but also if you the, you, the district, are owning public infrastructure, you're maintaining that. It becomes not only a finance vehicle, but a great maintenance vehicle for maintaining the publicly owned assets that were not dedicated to a city or a county.
1: Well, that's a very interesting point, because, you know, the first the first in, everything might look great, but you really having to look down the road 25, 50, even more years from now, how, how is that going to become self-sustaining? Well, that's, that's terrific. I, I think it'd be great to talk about some of the specific projects that you've worked on that people might be aware of. I, I know um, Tom Hoban from Kitson and partners was part of the podcast earlier this year um, and Babcock ranch. You've worked with them as well, right? Yep.
2: So uh, Babcock is one of our clients and uh, uh, Tom Hoban, we've worked with him for years. They're, they're a great team. Tom's a great guy to work with and I'm sure you heard all about it from Tom on your earlier podcast. So I don't want to repeat that, but you know, at a real high level level, Babcock Ranch is a stewardship district, which is basically a CDD, uh, which is a community development district with more powers and a longer turnover time frame. You know, unique things about Babcock is it operates its own water, its own sewer system, its own irrigation system, and they also operate their own waste disposal system. They also have a 400-acre solar farm that's really outside the district, but it's, it's part of the project in general. So they're a very unique project.
1: Yeah, that must have been a lot of fun to try and conceive how to bring that all to life in, in such an innovative way. It
2: really is. And that's what you, you asked earlier. What's fun about this business? It's working on really innovative projects like this with, with great teams like Tom and his team.
1: Awesome. What about some other um, some others that you have? I think you have some other projects down Um in South Florida, in the Miami area, is that right?
2: Yeah, we got a couple of uh, dense mixed-use urban infill projects. One is Miami World Center. You know, it's a large urban infill mixed-use project. It's planned for about 2,400 condos, 1,800 apartments, 350 hotel rooms, about 957,000 square feet of retail and restaurant uses, and it uses some other tools too. It actually receives TIF revenues from the city of Miami. We also have the Midtown Miami project, which is a, a little bit larger. Miami World Center is about 25 acres. Midtown Miami is about 50 acres. It, too, is a large urban infill mixed-use project that it build out is estimated to have over 3,000 condos and apartments, as well as 1.2 million square feet of retail, commercial, and office uses. It's got an uh, enterprise fund operating two public garages with over 3,000 parking spaces, and it too receives TIF revenues of over $3 million annually from the city of Miami, and we use that to offset the O&M costs of the, uh, of the uh, garage. Um, and just to um
1: keep us all on the same page. Can you talk a little bit about that TIF financing? What, what is that?
2: So a TIF financing is more common when you have an urban infill project, you're part of a, a blighted downtown where they have uh, the city has created a boundary. Usually it's called a CRA uh, for a community re, a reinvestment act, uh, but they'll create the boundaries and they'll say this area is blighted. It has very low ad valorem taxes right now. But any project that's included in the boundaries of the district uh, that creates development, adds value, presumably over time, it's going to have a lot larger value. It's going to kick off a lot more ad valorem taxes, and the typical TIF financing, which stands for tax increment financing, is to work out some type of split in the growth of those ad valorem taxes that you, the developer, have created. And some percentage of that would come back to you over a period of time and be used to defray some of your development costs.
1: Gotcha. So it sounds like you're often stacking some of these different either special districts or TIFs or other special financing tools to really bring these massive projects. To that's exactly, that that's
2: right? exactly what we're doing. And, you know, each, each state's a little bit different. So, you know, in Florida, it's more used for a dense urban, you know, infill project in Texas, we use TEFs a lot on just uh, master plan communities. A lot of the growth areas, for instance, outside of, uh, Dallas or outside of Houston or Austin, those smaller cities and smaller counties are dying for growth and they're willing to give up a piece of the ad valorem uh, pie to the developer in return for this development. So we actually do residential TIFs in Texas and then out there it's called a TERS, which stands for a tax increment reinvestment zone.
1: Well, you've definitely got those acronyms dialed in. (laughs) (laughs) That's terrific. Um, so, you know, when we think about the future, you know, a a lot of what we've been talking about this year with developers and builders is, you know, 2023 is, um, kind of up for grabs still. I think certainly in the markets that you serve, we're seeing some good momentum, but, um, when you think about your part of the projects and how you might, um, envision for the future, what what types of future financing can you anticipate or are there gaps in the market now that you think, you know, there's a unique place to fill?
2: You know, I really think it's pretty well established right now, for instance, the CDD law in Florida was established in 1980, 43 years ago. So it's a pretty well established tool. You know, TIFs are available in most of these states. Um, You know, on occasion, we'll do something called a PIF, a public infrastructure fee that we create, basically create an additional sales tax or hotel tax and some commercial deals. But like you said earlier, you know, we're we're stacking districts and stacking ideas, depending on the type of financing. But, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of it's already been baked around the country. And sometimes you're you're bringing an idea from one state to another. But it's a it's an idea that's been out there for a while.
1: Yeah. And what about states that don't participate? In terms of you know, is there do you see potential for this to grow as a as a vehicle geographically?
2: Actually, it's a really good question. We uh, we're actually just starting to brush off uh, some old files and try and make a run at creating a CDD law in Georgia possibly this year. And then I had a call from my uh, home building company the other day about uh, Tennessee. So really. The only two states in the southeast that don't have this law right now are Georgia and Tennessee. And if we, you know, have our wishes, it would be to make a run at both of those states in the next couple of years and in in their legislature and try and get these tools there.
1: Yeah, and I would imagine that, based on the way um, migration patterns are moving, and you know, there's a just a lot of people coming. From all over the country into the southeast that you know the demand for product and communities in those areas are, are going to continue to grow so does this then help developers um sort of come together with a capital plan to to expand further into georgia and, and tennessee yeah
2: it really does i mean one, one of the things that changed after the crash in 2008 is you used to have potentially bank financing as part of your capital stack and that disappeared and really has never come back. So, you know, most of the projects that I see, especially in in Florida and Texas, the capital stack is really a combination of private equity and then CDD or special special district debt of some type. So I think it would help, uh, you know, really foster more development in those two states if we can get the laws on the books.
1: Yeah. Well, good luck to you on that effort. Um, definitely uh, net gainers. You know, we talked to uh, to Peter Dennehy from Brookfield in the last few weeks and and, and talking about what what are those geographies? Maybe they had been secondary markets in the past that are really climbing. And, you know, there's a lot of demand for those uh, for those states, for sure. Yeah,
2: I agree. You know?
1: Well, as we kind of shift gears here a little bit, Phil, I'd love to to have you share more about yourself. When you think about what motivates you? Or where do you turn for inspiration? I mean, you've been at this for a while, both in your prior life and your current life. And it's great to be inspired by the projects themselves. But are there other sources of inspiration you look to to stay fresh and excited about this field?
2: You know, nothing really special. I like entrepreneurial type stories because, you know, we're, we're entrepreneurs owning our own businesses, but that, you know, I like those kind of stories and I like uh, endurance and survival stories. And I, I like history. And then I like lots of outdoor activities. That's what we like to do for fun. Like what? Hunting, fishing, scuba diving, all of that type stuff.
1: Yeah, fishing's what brought us to Montana, so we, we're right there with you. Um, what about, um, you know, from your perspective and sort of looking at your full career and the people that you've met and influences uh, on the choices that you've made, what advice from that viewpoint would you give a 25-year-old Phil who's you know sort of intrigued by the real estate industry, but just not really quite sure how to how to land and and grow, what, what advice would you offer?
2: That's actually a really good question because in the last year I've given this advice to several kids that graduated with my daughter, uh, from from university of Alabama a year and a half ago. And all of them ended up with great jobs in uh, Dallas in the development home building world. So my, my advice to all of them was go to a bigger market, you know, go to Mm -hmm. Dallas, Houston, Austin, go to Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, you know, Nashville, um, places like that. Go to a big market to start your career. That's where there's tons of jobs. There's tons of development. There's a lot of smart people to learn from, a lot of opportunities. And and like I said, uh, point in case is is my daughter and three of her classmates are working for great home builders and developers in Dallas and having a great time and loving the industry.
1: Yeah, and those are such vibrant, cities to, um, start, start out your career. Um, that's great advice. Go somewhere big and plant some roots and anything else in particular.
2: That's really it. And that's, that's the main advice I'm giving people right now. And, and that's one thing I did wrong. I went to a small market first in my career and looking back on it, I wish I would have started in the bigger one, which is where I ended up in the long run.
1: Yeah. You, you, you've kind of done it backwards. Yep. And so you do it the other way. Yep.
2: I learned the hard way. So I'm telling everybody to do <laughs> as I say, not as I did.
1: That's funny. It's, uh, you know, we, we, we learn at every stage of life. That's what I've come to realize and uh, bloom where you're planted. And I love the idea of plant yourself in a big market with lots of opportunity. A lot of people, your own age um, kind of build that network it'll, it'll serve you for the rest of your career for sure. Yes. Well said. Well, I think um, that's a great place for us to wrap this up, Phil. Thank you so much for providing such great background and just a deeper understanding of you know, these acronyms that, you know, frankly, I hear all the time and I have an incomplete understanding of. So it was very, very helpful to me. And I'm sure that others will find it so as well. So thank you again so much for your time. Well,
2: thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Alessant Innovator Series. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and learn more at alessantinnovatorseries.com.